really good to, to be here and to share this with you today. Uh, we have just come back from a few months in England. Um, I had some work and, and we also had some really good times uh, seeing friends and just enjoying uh, the, the beautiful countryside over there. Um, it's, it's really good to be back in Chelsea now uh, and with you all. Uh, and before you ask, we've, we've come back from England with exactly the same amount of insight into Brexit as we left here with. <laughs> no idea what's going on there. Um, and that, it seems like nobody knows. Uh, but there was one thing that caught my eye in the news when we were over there. In January of last year, the UK government appointed their first ever Minister for Loneliness. And Australia and the US are also talking about how are we going to tackle this, you know, what health experts are calling a growing epidemic of loneliness. Of course, we know that loneliness is much more than just being by yourself. Uh, and you know that often the loneliest place to be is in a crowd or even with family. It's this deep feeling of being disconnected from other people, like you're invisible. And it's not only extremely painful, loneliness kills us. Because uh, some research is looking into the, the negative impacts on not just mental but physical health as well. Um, they, they've concluded that it's like chronic loneliness is about the equivalent of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. It's brutal. And they say that one in five Australians are suffering from this, which means that they're in a category of people who rarely or never have someone to talk to. So before I go any further, can, can we just all agree that we should be a community where nobody ever feels that they have no one to talk to? But it, it could happen if we let it. So please let's keep this conversation going after and, and just make sure that we're looking out for each other in that very important way. Because every one of us longs for human connection and our bodies just fall apart without it. And there's a good reason, because we were made for that. We were made for togetherness. So that why? Why is it so difficult to find? It's a question that many people are asking Throughout the secular world, you know, you see it in news headlines, you also see echoes of it through the arts. Listen to this uh, from a novel written in the 60s called Principia Discordia, uh, where one of the characters named Mal, he consults the gods for their advice. And he's, he's distraught and he goes to them and he says, everywhere I look, people are hurting each other and the whole planet is just full of injustice and war. And the gods reply in their aloof kind of way, what is the matter with that if it is what the people want? And Mel says, nobody, nobody wants this. Uh, everybody hates it. And the gods give their advice. Then you should all stop doing that. <laughs> captures this sense of frustration that there is something that everybody is reaching for and yet, we're just incapable of grasping it. It's weird, don't you think? Like everybody wants peace. You go down the street, just ask a random stranger, hey, you reckon world peace is a good idea? 
They'll say, yeah. Everybody wants good relationships. So then how have we come to the point where one in five of us are dying in a relational desert? It's not a new problem for us. This goes right back to the start. And the Bible begins with a story of this beautiful world that, that God has made. And he makes a human. Uh, and you know, even though this human is, is with God himself, and, and you know, he's got all these cool pets too, God says it's not right for this human to be alone. And so you know what God does about that? He splits the atom. And, and now, um, so we see, now we see these two, <laughs> sorry, now we see these two humans, Adam and Eve, who are described as having this perfect unity. Like, they're separate and they're different, but they live as though they are one. They have this perfect oneness with each other. There's no competition between them, uh, and, and they're free to be completely themselves, never needing to hide anything from the other. And they're also in perfect harmony with God. They walk with him in the garden and they're co-rulers of the world with him. Now, if you know the story, things start to get a little bit weird with like talking snakes and magic fruit, but let's not get distracted by that because the point is right there. Everything fell apart on the day that they decided to exchange their unity with God for their independence from God. See, up until this point in the story, God has been creating things and saying, this is good. Hey, that's, that's really good. And he is the one who decides what is good and what is bad. In fact, note that the first time he ever says that something is not good, it is not good for this human to be alone. He knows but on this day, Adam and Eve decide, mm, yeah, I'd kind of rather choose for myself what's good or bad for me rather than taking God's advice on it. So they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. And suddenly it's not just the unity that they had with God that is shattered. It's a connection that they had with each other is permanently damaged. From now on, there's always going to be conflict and competition between them. And these people, they're our parents. It's no surprise that just as they began, so we continue. It's our story too. Yeah, we all want peace. We just, each of us wants it on our own terms. You know, we often hear things today like, everyone should decide for themselves what is right for them. That sounds fair and there is a degree to which we absolutely need this, this kind of individual freedom in our imperfect world. The problem is that whole thing is based on the premise that what is right for me cannot possibly be right for everyone. We can't even imagine that scenario. And whatever I decide is good for me, at some point it's going to be bad for you. And that causes conflict. Now there are only two options. We either have to like, avoid each other and get some distance or you know, we're going to have to biff it out. We can't 
stay as we are any longer. We either become strangers or enemies. But Paul wrote this letter to encourage us because he saw another way that despite our imperfection, we could come back to enjoying this perfect unity once more. We need to find out about that. So, let's be united, yeah? Okay, um, how, do we, how do we do that? Put it another way, what are we going to unite around? Well, we could unite around a particular interpretation of scripture, you know, and doctrine and, and tradition. You know, we could make sure that we've got all the right answers to all the hard questions and, you know, all the theological formula worked out. And we could, we could probably even draw some really nice diagrams of how the Trinity works, you know, just so it's really clear. Um, you know, and then if, if somebody doesn't agree with us, well, they can leave. And, and, you know, and then whoever is left will all be united, right? Or we could unite around culture wars, you know, around the moral issue of the day. Uh, you know, Christians in the media who, who we think are being treated unfairly. And we could come together and, and rally up political power, you know, to defend our religious freedom and, and protect our Christian values. Both of these approaches have vast power to unite us, but neither of them can offer the kind of unity that Paul is struggling so hard to lead us towards. It would be a tragedy if we settled for one of those. Because Paul makes it clear he wants us to be united in love. He wants love to be the thing that defines us and the place where we get our identity. Because the key to unity is identity. Fun fact about me, uh, I was born and raised here in Melbourne. I've lived here most of my life. But I have never once set foot in the MCG. Uh, and I can see that I've kind of lost your respect now. But bear with me. Um, so I've never been there, but my sources tell me that if I were to go to the MCG, I would see a big crowd of people and half of them would be in certain colours and the other half would be in different colours. Very strange. See, these people, it's like they've taken on the identity of their team. And you know, even without the colours, uh, you can tell, can't you, if someone's team has lost a match because <laughs> they're a bit cranky that week. Um, but it's become such a part of their identity that it's like what is happening to the players out there on the field is also happening to them. And it's just like what Paul is saying too. I want you all to be united in love. This love that you have received, that you continue to extend to others, that should be the most important thing about you. And Paul is not talking about any old kind of love. He has something very specific in mind because he's getting this directly from Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 13. He said, I command you, Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. And when people see you loving each other that way, 
That's how they're going to know that you belong to me. And later on in chapter 17, he prays, I ask you, Father, that they may be one just as we are one, so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. So Jesus commands us to love each other in a way that he has loved us so that it becomes our one shared identity. His love, that is our team colours. And did you notice that, according to Jesus, love is a primary form of evangelism? This is how the world will know, he says. Because everyone in the world has, has a different idea of, of what they think God is like, don't they? Some people think he's like nothing because he doesn't exist. That's, you know, that's one idea. Other people have you know, different ideas. Everyone has different baggage they bring to, when they come to that question. And let's be honest, all of us have some pretty messed up ideas about what God is like. That's why we need to keep reading together and, and refining, you know, renewing our ideas. But Jesus says, when my people are living as though they are one with each other and with me, then the world will see what God is really like. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Let us every day evangelize by the practical ways that we love and care for each other. Because I can guarantee you, uh, it is going to blow people's minds when they see that. Well, what does this love look like? Another time, Jesus said, Love your neighbour as though they were yourself. It's, it's a pretty famous saying of Jesus. Love your neighbour as yourself. Well, I'd like to do a little exercise together, if you'll just humour me. Everyone, can you make this shape with your hands? Just like that, yeah. Good. Now, imagine a really, really good sandwich. Mmm, that's good. Okay, you got the sandwich? Now, imagine you're feeling hungry. Not just a little bit peckish, like it's been a good eight hours since you last ate. What do you do? You eat the sandwich. Mmm, it's good. You eat it. Yourself, yeah, you can put your hands down. Thank you. <laughs> you eat that sandwich. Yourself is hungry. And so you feed yourself. Notice what we don't do. We don't do it grudgingly, like, okay, this time. We don't expect anything in return. In fact, we hope not. We, we don't get proud about how charitable we are, like, yeah, you know what? I actually am kind of a good person. Hmm. Uh, we, we don't worry if I feed myself this time. Am I just going to become dependent on handouts? We don't look at our own sinfulness and, and worry if I help myself this time. Am I just endorsing that behavior? I'm hungry, so I feed myself. Simple. Jesus says, make it that simple when you see someone else hungry or in debt or needing shelter 
or needing your time to talk and to listen. Just make it that simple. See, love the other as yourself is a mindset that says if someone else needs something and you have it, come on, this should be a no-brainer. It's a mindset that acknowledges that everything we have ultimately belongs to God. And if we hold back from someone else in need, Jesus says, you're holding back from God. Because throughout the Bible, we see again and again, the God of the universe identifies himself with the poor, with the needy, the hungry, and the lonely. So who is our neighbour? Just the people next door? Just the people that we like hanging with? Well, Paul writes earlier in Colossians. Let's see if this works. Yes. Just in the previous chapter to what we heard before, Paul writes, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, unmoved from the hope held out in the gospel. See, our world is all into love when it's the people that we like. But it has other ideas about what to do with those who are different or who are our enemies. The world says, those people, they don't really belong here. Um, They're kind of someone else's problem. You know, I've, I've got to look after my own people. I've got to think about my children's future. Because if they come here, it's going to get worse for us. When God shows up as a human in Jesus, it's how we treat him. He is rejected, disowned. Well, how does God respond to that? Is he like us? Does he say... Yeah, whatever, you know, I don't, I don't need you, I'm out of here. No, he loves and forgives and draws near the very ones who disowned him. Our world says, you know, it's survival of the fittest. If you've got an enemy, only one of you is coming out on top. It's going to be either you or them. Well, the full completeness of God shows up in Jesus and says, you know, you're right. Put, put us in a room, only one's coming out alive. And I want it to be you. Just think about that. Paul says that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ while he was on the cross. Because he knew that that's what it was going to take to make peace with us to break us out of our old habits and ways into a new kind of life. 
he was glad to do that. See, we think, love your enemies, sorry, we think, love your friends, destroy your enemies. God destroys his enemies by turning them into his friends. Though it costs him everything. And he's pleased, he pays it gladly because now nothing can make us ever doubt whether he's truly for us. This kind of love we will not find anywhere else. And it's what he wants to teach us, to train us in, if we will follow him. You know, and we're going to hear people say from outside the church and sadly from within too, we're going to hear that we would be foolish to love the outsiders and the enemies with this kind of love. But Paul says, that's what we were. We were strangers to God and enemies of God. And just look, look how he loved us. How can we possibly hold that back from anyone else now? And to those who call it foolish, Jesus says, hey, you think that's foolish? Hold my wine. Because you remember before when I read Jesus commanding, love as I have loved you. Well, here is the context of what has just happened prior. The disciples have just been completely embarrassed, scandalized, when their teacher, their master, gets down in the dirt and washes their feet. He, the Son of God, being their servant, And without a word, he, he holds this foot in his hands, washes the dirt away, and dries it, thinking, this is the foot of the one who, in just a few hours from now, is going to say that he never knew me and wouldn't be seen dead with me. How I long for this one to be my friend, my brother. I would give up my life for him. Next disciple comes along and he, he takes the feet and washes off the dirt, dries them, thinking, these are the feet of the one who has already made up his mind that tonight he's, he's going to sell me over to death for a handful of coins. How much I long for this one to be my friend. I would give my life for him. Have we wrapped our heads around the scandal of Jesus' love for us? That's, that's not right to do that, Jesus. Don't, don't you know what I am like? I'm not worth that kind of love from you. But he knows. He made us and he knows us better than we know ourselves. He sees right through all of those fake identities that we put up to cover up our flaws and our insecurities, he sees right into our hearts. And he says, I do know you. You are worth it to me. You are my treasure. I would give up everything I have to be with you. Brothers and sisters, that is the kind of reckless, self-giving love that we're dealing with here. What are we going to do with that? Because there is something else that we need to grapple with. 
As we begin to understand the depth and, and the relentless nature of Jesus' love for us, no matter how many times we screw up, it, it dawns on us. Oh no, he says I have to love others that much? How are we going to do that? I don't, I don't get close to this, not even on a good day. Please do not leave here today carrying a burden of thinking that you need to be perfect. Jesus is perfect. He knows that we are not. If he commands it, that means that he is committed to doing this in us and through us. He will never give up on you. And we're going to need each other too. We are going to need to learn how to depend on each other to a degree that we probably never have before. Because unity is the way that we reach the goal. Listen to this from the passage that we read before. My goal, says Paul, is that they be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, we can know about God by what we hear and read, but it's when we unite with one another in Jesus' love for us and, and do that for others. That's when we're participating with him. We're not just knowing about him anymore. We're knowing him personally, participating in what he is doing in the world. Here we see the full wonder of what God has done for us in Christ. He has brought us back into harmony with him. And that awful fracturing that happened way back in the Garden of Eden, all the pain and suffering that we've caused each other since then, it's all being reversed right before our eyes. And he calls us to be co-rulers of the world with him once more. Not ruling like the rulers of this world, ruling with love. Because Jesus is the head over every power and authority. And we are his body, knit together by his love. I want to I want to finish with just asking us some questions. Um, but before I do, I need to ask your patience and forgiveness in advance, because I am not where I need to be with this stuff, and I will make plenty more mistakes along the way too. So I hope that we can hold each other up and encourage each other along this path. But please, let's ask ourselves. Are we prepared to make changes to our lives to allow this kind of unity and oneness to flourish? Jesus has given us an amazing treasure in him and in each other. Are we going to enjoy it? Have we carefully set aside space in our lives so that we actually can be there for one another with our money, with our time, with our energy? Or are we just maxed out with our own stuff?
Because I worry when I look at my own life and the ideals that our culture encourages us towards. Paul writes that he is struggling for us to be united, but just look at how much we struggle to get space from each other. It makes no sense. We weren't made to be so individualistic and our idols are literally draining the life out of us. And Paul's warning in this passage is it's too real. Our very imaginations have been taken captive by the ideals of this world so that we struggle to even imagine living in this kind of codependent way that Jesus longs for us to share in and enjoy with him. But you know what? We will. Because it doesn't depend on us. We depend on Christ and he will never fail us or give up on us. This is too difficult a challenge for us to overcome. But let us be encouraged by the words of our Lord Jesus. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. And with this courage, let us dare to depend on each other and share ourselves with each other in a way that brings life to those around us. Now, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so continue to live your lives in him. Just as he began, let us continue. God, help us to see in Christ how much you love us, that you are for us in a way that pushes our imagination beyond the limits. God, our Father, give us faith to choose this love over and over again, even when others try to discourage us, even when we disappoint ourselves. Though this love, this kind of love, can seem risky and foolish, we ask that you will fill us with assurance that Christ himself, the author and perfecter of love, is living in us by your Spirit. We cannot do this on our own. So please, unite us together in love. We cannot do this apart from you. So we thank you for joining us together with Jesus in a way that will never come undone. And just as he began, let us continue. Amen.